Let us pray. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities that happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the Psalms. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait Wait for the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Philippians. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door. Saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, 
and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are first who will be last and some are last who shall be first. Some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning again to you all. Uh, Once again, welcome to our Youth Sunday service, Um, and we're uh, we as youth are especially excited to be here um, because we weren't able to do this service last year. Um, so this is really great. Um, and so uh, something, thing, something um, a lot of you probably already know, um, but one of the traditions for the Youth Sunday service is to have the youth preach. Um, but this year, we're going to um, shake things up a little bit and um, bring along a parrot for the Youth Sunday service. So while usually we as youth can make jokes blaming Pete for any errors or heresy, this year we can blame someone else on the staff. So I'm going to bring up my dad, Pastor Joel. And I wanted to ask him, do you have a favorite city that you have visited? Oh, sure I do. Uh, let me think. I know that we, uh, I lived in Chicago for a couple of years and I love Chicago, but I would say of all the cities I've visited, I have to say London kind of comes to the front. What about you? I really like Chicago. Yeah? Something about all the people there. A lot of people? Yep, lots of people. Yes, of differing moods. Yep. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, we're going to dig into this passage a little bit. It's a bit of a hard passage, and it's pretty intense. But we're going to open in prayer, and we'll start it up. Thanks a lot, buddy. Our Lord in heaven, we thank you for the way that you teach us through your word. And we thank you that you give us tough words sometimes. Sometimes you give us words that are not comfortable, but they're good for us to hear. And we pray that you would help us to, to take them to heart. And to just love you with all of our heart and soul and mind. Amen. So as our delightful opening banter made clear, one of the things my son Jack and I share is a love of cities. Oftentimes we think of the energy or the character of certain cities. Cities are exciting places. They're places of commerce, art, culture. They're places we go to see our favorite sports teams. If, if you want to have an interesting story later on, you can, I can tell you about the altercation I almost had in the bleachers at Wrigley Field one time. 
Even in rural parts of the country, there still have to be places, be they town halls or main streets, where people come together for worship, education, sport, or commerce. While the story of salvation begins in a garden, it does end in a city, the New Jerusalem. Our gospel today is a heavy one. It tells hard truths, Lenten truths. It begins and ends with Jerusalem, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Jerusalem stands not only as a real place you can go visit, but as a symbol of gathering and of the presence of God. The concept of the presence of God takes up so much of the scriptures. From the garden to the tabernacle to the temple to the incarnation of Jesus himself, The gathering of God's people to his holy place is a central theme to the story of redemption. Our salvation is tied to the presence of God, since we are made to be with him. So, when a crucial question comes in our gospel today, Jesus answers the way he almost always does, by changing the focus of the question. He wants to make a point about the preciousness of entering the gate into his presence. He wants to make a point to strive to enter the narrow gate because being at the table of the master in the kingdom is the most important thing in the world. In verse 22, Luke makes this story, he begins this story by remarking in an almost offhanded way that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 9, after the transfiguration, Luke tells us that Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. This ends up being really important in Luke's narrative, and we see him coming back to it. And here in chapter 13, Jerusalem figures prominently once again. And as it turns out, this is the first time Jerusalem has even been mentioned in his narrative since chapter 9. Luke is reminding us what Jesus' ultimate destination is. So in the midst of this journey, somebody asks him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And then, in verses 24 through 30, Jesus gives a long, troubling, somewhat puzzling answer. As he so often does, Jesus again decides to answer the question by changing the focus, as I said. He makes clear that the important thing, the focus, is not necessarily how many get in, but he admonishes his listeners that they make an urgent attempt to enter in. This gate imagery he talks about seems to be quite central to Jesus' teaching. There's talk of what happens outside the gate. There's talk of what happens inside the gate. There's talk of what happens at the gate. And there's talk of how people from the north, south, east, west are able to enter to the gate, while some who had dined with the master himself are shut out. So while it becomes clear to us elsewhere in scripture how one enters the gate through faith and what the gate is, Jesus himself is the gate after all, Jesus doesn't really focus on that here. He only says how very important it is that one makes every effort to enter. And we are reminded that in in verses 25 through 28 that there will be those who are caught outside the door at the crucial moment. When I was thinking through this difficult truth, I considered my own journey to Jerusalem. I thought about the word picture Jesus is creating here and one very real place that he might have had in mind when he created it. 
I went on a college trip to Israel back in 1996. I stayed in Jerusalem at a church. This church was directly west of the old city across what is called the Hinnom Valley. I can still remember my first morning there. Jet lagged, I had stayed up all night. Looking across the Hinnom Valley at the Jaffa Gate, a west, one of the western entrances to the old city, and I was watching the sunrise. It's not the same gate, of course, that was there when Jesus was around, but it creates that word picture for me. And it's a pretty good-sized gate. You can drive a car through it, but it would get narrow pretty quickly if two million people tried to get into it at once. And it's important to remember that Jerusalem was the place where everyone came. The Gospels often depict Jesus in Jerusalem, and almost always it is during a feast, the time of gathering. The people of God were being gathered by God during these feasts to remember his great works and to be a beacon to the world. Imagine for a moment, just for a moment, and think about a huge gathering place here in the Twin Cities, a stadium, concert venue, convention center, and think about what would happen if everyone in the Twin Cities metro was invited to that place at once. That's what Jerusalem was. God himself had not only ordained feasts for his people, Passover, trumpets, booths, he had also ordained a place to have them, Jerusalem. But at the crucial time, some are found outside the gate. This same Hinnom Valley, west of the city that I just mentioned, is also known as the Gehenna Valley. And Gehenna is one of the words Jesus uses in his teaching for the life outside the kingdom. It's another word for the place of banishment, for hell. And the unpleasant truth is that there are some who will refuse to be gathered Jesus is making clear that there will be an unexpected reversal in those who join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the new kingdom. Of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are there. They were the patriarchs. But the people of Israel had reached the point where they were not pursuing the kingdom. They thought that being the chosen people was enough, and they were not striving to enter the gate. They assumed they were already on the inside of the gate. Jesus also mentions that the prophets are there with the patriarchs. And I think if we look at Israel's history, I mean, the patriarchs were pretty prosperous, kind of in the front of the line, I would say. But is there anyone quite as last in many of the stories as the prophets? If the kings and the powerful were first in Jerusalem, so often the prophets just came in dead last. But if we look closely at the language Jesus uses, he notes that all these people from north, south, east, west are all able to be at the table, not simply at the gate. And while some who thought they should be at the table and who were at the table are not. And yes, Jesus rejoices over those who are with him at his table. But he also weeps for those outside. He weeps for those who refuse to be gathered. As my son will soon talk about, Jesus weeps over the lack of desire his people have to be gathered to him. Jerusalem as a city had become a place that didn't matter about striving to enter. All that mattered is that you were already in. As I mentioned at the outset, 
Jack and I love cities. But if we have to be honest, so often they can be places of backward priorities where the values of the world are magnified above the values of the kingdom, where innate status is more important than earnestness, where the rich and important are elevated and the poor and truth-tellers are scorned. Jesus encountered opposition time and time again in Jerusalem. He loved the great city so much, but loved it so much that he would not ignore its sin. And his admonishment remains even now for us. He invites us into his presence. He urges us to enter into the gate of the presence of God. He tells us his yoke is easy and his burden is light. To enter the gate is a free gift, but it has to be accepted earnestly and fully. It looks like the song we just sang, he wants our hearts. It looks like Psalm 27, one thing have I asked, that I be in the house of the Lord. So with that in mind, I'm going to turn this over to my Dear son, Jack, who has a lot to say about Jesus' ultimate destination. Jack? Hello again. Um, I wanted to think for a second about numbers. Don't worry, small numbers. One thing that uh, has continued to strike me whenever I read the Gospels is the number three. And Jesus uses this number so many times. He often uses it to illustrate the same point about his impending suffering and very explicitly does so. We're used to the phrases such as that of the temple being torn down or when Jesus tells us that he will die and on the third day rise again. I know I'm racing ahead a bit here, but I really wanted to highlight the frequent use of this number. Because for the first time while I was reading this, I actually found myself asking, why three? Let's take another look at our gospel reading. Jesus says here, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. This isn't quite how we normally see Jesus use this number, right? Because like I said, we're used to the parallels to the crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus, this, Jesus uses this number to kind of make a new point. He's setting out on a journey. In the coming time, he will travel, and after that, he will face his destiny. But in either way, I think Jesus uses this number to illustrate a time of embarking on a thing that must be done, a middle time in which Jesus goes on a journey and performs actions, still moving in a certain direction, and a final time at which point there is a greater event that completes the first and second. So, while it may appear that Jesus is using this number in a new sort of way, I think he's also using it in the way he normally does, because of the ultimate end that he points to. After Jesus says this, 
he goes on to say something rather unpleasant about this destination of his, especially considering what my father partially articulated previously. Jesus is going to Jerusalem at the time when the most people, in fact, when the most Jews are gathered there, is a place most look up to, a place people hold as their place of worship and celebration. But even bigger, it's just, it's not some random celebration, right? This is the celebration of the Passover. It's the biggest event for both the people themselves and for their religion. As a Jew, you would probably hope to see Jesus pointing toward Jerusalem in awe and reverence. Jesus says almost the exact opposite. To Jesus, it is a place that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And here is where I found myself at a loss for what exactly Jesus meant, turning to a commentary. And it said that Jerusalem's killing of the prophets means that Jerusalem doesn't listen to warning. It is a city selectively blind and deaf to all the signs God has sent it. And we can easily see this to be true when we read through the Old Testament. We have prophet after prophet warning the people of Israel and Judah that they have been following their way rather than God's. And a couple even tell the people that there are signs that God has not hidden or imparted to just one prophet. It should be obvious that God is sending a message through whatever he sends, be it anything from storm to sickness to just some random sign that that doesn't necessarily involve some sort of plague or anything like that. And granted, some of these prophets are sent to Israel rather than Jerusalem, Judah, right? There were prophets sent to both lands. But again, Jerusalem is meant to be the center of God's worship. And for such a place to turn a blind eye to all of God's messages in this way show how, shows how corrupt this land really is. So, with all that in mind, we can immediately take Jesus' words to heart when he says this. But we then need to remember what he said before. He says, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In saying this, Jesus is foretelling the fate he will soon suffer. And that Jerusalem will be no better at seeing God for who he really is than they were at accepting the words of God. And he doesn't stop there. He continues with this image of a hen gathering her brood, that is, her chicks, under her wings in an act of protection. And this sort of thing would often be used by a hen in order to protect her chicks from a quickly passing fire that's sweeping through. And the hope is to shield the chicks and the chicks only from the fire. In doing this, a hen is accepting her fate of death. But in the hope that the fire, as it passes quickly, will not harm the chicks, even as the mother is killed. This gives us a very beautiful image of God's love. But Jesus here flips the picture on its head and presents the image of the chicks unwilling to accept this protection and through this, accepting death. I think this shows us a perfect example of thinking we can find our own way 
and make our own decisions. And while fending for oneself isn't always a bad thing, it can so quickly become apart from God. And we can so quickly and subconsciously think we don't need God. And this can too quickly lead us to walking, as Paul so well puts it, as enemies of the cross of Christ, where we find ourselves working against God. Jesus and Paul both make it very clear what the end of this path brings. And one other interesting aspect that Paul brings up in our Philippians reading is, I think, the lack of foresight. Paul says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with mind set on earthly things. These people are concerned only about the here and the now, and aren't at all concerned with what's coming. And again, that makes them into enemies of the cross of Christ. To be fair here, being concerned about earthly things isn't bad. People have a life to live and maintain, and people that they care about. And we shouldn't just waste our time on earth only being concerned about the ultimate salvation that God brings. Even though it is very important. It's fine to live your life and enjoy it. This can so easily slip into unhealthy passions like gluttony or lust. And this leads us to the same place of being God's enemy. And the inability to see where your actions could lead ahead of time can take you to this place. All this and many other things like this have befallen Jerusalem. And while it seems to be a great place of gathering and fellowship, we see them unwilling to be gathered together by God. If God is involved, they show they want no part of it, whether they are meant to be the center of God's worship or not, even if they might say otherwise. So, with all this in mind... I encourage you to think about, as I had to frankly force myself to think about while reading this passage, in what way am I maybe starting to tell myself, even subconsciously, I can do this without God and without God's word? Let's pray. We pray for the ability to see clearly and for foresight, Lord. And we thank you for your love and your willingness to sacrifice yourself, even if we're not always willing to accept it, Lord. In your name, amen.